Al Jazeera podcast. The bodies of more than 300 members of a Christian doomsday cult have now been unearthed in Kenya. About 5,000 such movements are estimated to exist worldwide. So why do people join these often secretive societies and what dangers might they face? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests for today's Inside Story in Mombasa, Kenya, Shipeta Matias, a rapid response officer at Haki Africa, which is a rights group that supports cult victims in Kenya. In Portland in the U.S. is Diane Benz-Cotter. She joined a religious movement whose members are known as the Moonies when she was 17 years old. Diane is now the founder of Antidote, a non-profit that exposes the dangers of psychological manipulation. And in Greater Manchester in the U.K. is Linda Debrow Marshall, a clinical psychologist and senior lecturer at the University of Salford. Thank you to all three of you for joining us. Diane in Oregon, uh, let me start with you, please. You were once part of the Unification Church, whose members are commonly known as, as the Moonies. Many, including in Japan and Europe, see them see it as a, as a cult. But in South Korea, where it was founded, it's considered legally as a religion. Can you tell us first, Diane, what defines a cult and how you identify it? I think that there's uh, a lot of definitions of what a cult is. It's often an extremist belief system and a community of people that are pretty isolated. But I think what's really important to understand is the kind of psychological manipulation that goes on within these groups that has control over people in a way that's a lot of people have a hard time understanding. And I think that's the core of what's important uh, within a cult. How do you identify a cult? I think you can identify it by the tactics that are used to control people on a psychological level. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key things that uh, the cult leaders will do is polarize and create an us versus them. And uh, so that people feel exceptional, they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, mm-hmm. and they feel like, the group that they're in is has kind of a special relationship with a greater purpose or even with God. It's it, that, That's typically the most important thing is that feeling of we're the special people and everyone else just doesn't understand. Mm. Linda, I'll ask you about the psychological tactics in a bit, but I want to come to you first, uh, Shipeta, because, of course, the reason we're having this discussion today is because cults are once again making headlines with the events in Kenya. You work with the grassroots group that I understand helped police discover the victims of Pastor Paul McKenzie in in Kenya on the coast there. You've been at the heart of this investigation, I understand. Can you tell us how this all unfolded, how you were able to find these bodies that are buried in Shakahola Forest in Kenya? Thank you very much. Uh, I think when when we first heard about about the case, we... We thought it's just a normal rescue mission that we're going to rescue uh, uh, a young boy. Uh, mm-hmm. The grandfather had actually come to report to us. So when we followed up, we were actually following up on rescuing the boy. But it turned out to be something else because after we rescued the boy, uh, we were able to see that there were more other people who were actually inside the forest. 
majority of them were emaciated. Uh, the ones that we found that, that actually shocked us were about four people that we found lying on the picket, and they were just praying their last prayers to be able to, to actually go to heaven. So when we tried to help them, they were really uh, hesitant or they were reluctant, and they just wanted the help from Jesus. So mm -hmm. There was a word Jesus many times that was being mentioned, and uh, it seemed like they were ready to actually meet Jesus. So we seem to be enemies uh, in actually uh, making them or stopping them from meeting the maker. Yeah. So that's how we, we found out. And, uh, but then things blew up when we were told by when the boy narrated to us as to how people have been fasting in that area and how many people had actually died in that area. Mm -hmm. That's when we involved the police and we were, we were able to exhume the number of uh, bodies that are still ongoing, about mm -hmm. 310 so far. Uh, yeah. So that's when we knew we are dealing with a cult. That's when you knew you were dealing with a cult. And Linda, I want to come to you now because both Diane and, and Shipetta mentioned this aspect of them versus uh, us. And people have this idea of people who get into cults as people who have psychological problems. What are the profiles of the victims? Why do they get involved in these cults? Let me correct that myth. It's not that people have psychological problems uh, before they enter the group. They develop psychological problems being in the group. I mean, they, they might have some psychological problems, but the truth is, and it's a hard one to fathom, that all of us are susceptible to cultic influence. Now, we're more susceptible at particular times if we're vulnerable, if we've suffered a loss, if we have some existential crisis looking for meaning in life, but it can happen to anyone. You know, you can be recruited by a close friend or a relative and it just sounded good and they deceive you and don't tell you what you signed up for. These people didn't sign up to die. Mm -hmm. This is something that happens gradually. The demands of the group get uh, more and more outrageous. And by that time, you're more dependent on the leader or on the group. You have a psychological dependency and you become enslaved in your mind. And it's hard to get out of that. And you're isolated and you don't get opposing viewpoints from other mm. people that would help you challenge it. Right. Uh, Linda, m many of these cults, when you look at Kenya, for example, hide behind religion. When does a cult become a religion? And when does a religion become a cult? Well, um, I think the focus there should be on the abusive practices that occur mm -hmm. and the degree of influence and control in a person's life. So usually religion may play an important part in a person's life, but it doesn't say you have to move to our community necessarily. You have to give up your job, your education, your family if they don't agree. You know, there's tolerance for other viewpoints. And then there's the outright abuse that occurs, the illegal behaviors. It's important to note in this very tragic and compelling case that it wasn't all suicides, that there were strang strangulations and mm -hmm. murder, murder mm -hmm. of children. And this has happened in the other groups that have been described as suicide cults, uh, where people were also murdered. They didn't mm -hmm. all commit suicide. So it's not always suicide uh, cases, uh, yeah. as, as we've seen in Kenya. Uh, Diane, let me come to you. Linda said this can happen to anyone. 
and this happened to you in the 1970s. Tell us about your own experience. Yes. You spent five years, I believe, with the Moonies. How did you get right. involved with, with this organization and how were you able to leave? Uh, well, I agree with everything Linda said. That was really well put. Um, and I was young and vulnerable. I was, there was, the Vietnam War was going on and I felt really upset about that. I was looking for easy answers to life's hard questions. I wanted to use my life for something bigger. And so when I met this group, they were going on a walk for world peace. At least that's what they were saying. And I went on this walk and uh, heard these lectures about uh, that focused on what was wrong with the world and God's plan and how I had been chosen for a special mission by God. Mm -hmm. And it all just made sense to me at the time. And these people were so dedicated and they, they just seemed so authentic. And so I was pulled into it. And for five years, I really believed wholeheartedly that the Messiah was on the earth and that I was a disciple of Christ and that this is what God wanted of me. And I worked really, really hard. The way I got out was that my family hired someone. It was an ex-member of the Moonies that talked to me about a lot of things. But the thing that made the difference was when she described what brainwashing was. She referred to a book by Robert Lifton mm. uh, called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism that describes what is in an environment where thought reform or brainwashing or mind control is going on. And every one of those things rang true to me. Mm -hmm. And I could no longer accept the lie. It, it all came crashing down on me. And I realized that I had fallen for essentially a very big lie. Right. So it was devastating. So it was your family who, in a way, pulled you out. And I read some of, yes. your, of your bio. You said your family had you deprogrammed. And then you also became a deprogrammer, which, you know, for our audience, yes. essentially was what kidnapping victims of these cults and trying to get them out of it, which you were arrested for. What was that like, you know, that second phase of the experience? During that time, there were a lot of desperate family members, parents that didn't know what to do. And there was kind of an underground railroad of sorts where deprogrammers, these people, mostly ex-members of cults, were um, hired by families and the families would stand in front of the windows and doors and not let the person leave until they talked with us. We'd come in and talk with them sometimes for days at a time. Um, we tried to let them sleep and eat and, uh, you know, tried to get them to think and think critically about their situation. But the process was really just talking with them about the possibility that they had been taken advantage of on a psychological level. And that's really what the heart of a deprogramming is. No one does it like that anymore right. uh, that I know of. I, I know it's a, it's a word uh, Linda doesn't really like, deprogramming. But I'll come back to you, Linda, in just a second to ask you what you think now is the best way to get people out of these cults. Shibeta, I, I wanted to ask you more about the case in Kenya because I understand that you've been involved in, in some of the post-mortem on the bodies that have been uh, unearthed. And uh, I wanted you to tell us about some of these victims, their profiles, and also what sort of experience they endured at the, at the hands of this pastor. 
Okay, um, thank you very much. I think majority of the victims that we found are children, uh, followed by women, and a bit of some men that we found. And this is based on the doctrine that Paul McKenzie was preaching, that the world is coming to an end in the month of August 2023. So he was going to be the last person to die. So the children will die first, then followed by women, then followed by men, and then he will be the last person to die. So that's why we have found more children uh, and women in, in this uh, exhumation process because we found them at the time. Uh, I'm sure if we, had, if we had done this exercise by around August, we would even have found even more men actually mm -hmm. have, have actually died. So that's the doctrine that he was preaching. It's based on First Maccabees, book of First Maccabees, uh, mm -hmm. chapter 2, verse 28. I've seen many of the Bibles uh, right. that we found there were highlighting that part But why of the did Bible. the victims join? What, why did they join? Majority of the victims left their good homes, comfort, uh, comfortable life, and left uh, to join the, the forest because they were believing that the world is coming to an end. Uh, mm -hmm. Majority went during the COVID-19 uh, uh, era because the world seemed like there was confusion, the pandemonia that was involved uh, during that time. And, and, in, and in Kenya, you see even the signs that are in the book of Revelation, there was, a, there was a certain time in Kenya when they were giving the Huduma number, which mm -hmm. actually seemed like the number of the beast, 666. So right. they were trying to go and seclude themselves so that they can be able to, to, to go to heaven. So that's why majority of them uh, actually went and followed that pastor. And that right. pastor had been controversial uh, he was using uh, YouTube. He was he was even yeah, having, he was uh, using social media and YouTube videos to 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 um, indoctrinate people. Um, Linda, I want to ask you now: How does someone's brain come to the point of wanting to save the world through death? Exactly. So, uh, what happens here is that uh, what you believe gets flipped completely by a very persuasive and charismatic leader was able to convince people that there was a better life coming, this world was coming to an end, so you don't feel like you're killing yourself, you feel like you're facilitating your entry into that better world, the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And this is what Robert J. Lipton called destroying the world to save it, when he talked about the sour gas attacks in Tokyo at the Amshrinkyo group. And uh, so we've seen this before, and he flipped Common morality is save the children first, then the women, then the mm -hmm. men. He mm -hmm. flipped that all around. And you can only do that if people feel they're preserving themselves by moving to the better place in heaven. Therefore, the children suddenly make sense to send them first when actually everything that we would normally feel would revolt against that. Mm. Interesting. And what about, we've talked about the victims. What about the, the perpetrators, the cult leaders? When you look at someone like Paul McKenzie in Kenya, uh, whose followers starved to death, what picture does it does it give you of the individual? 
Well, this would appear to be a very narcissistic and psychopathic individual who has no regard for, certainly no regard for people's lives. Someone who maybe gets off on feeling very powerful over other people, about having all these followers, about the things that he was able to convince them of. And there may have been other motives. I've seen some suggestions that some of the bodies had organs removed. I don't know the accuracy of that, but mm. I mean, so there may have been other financial incentives. But what someone like him does is he forms, he gets the people that follow him to have a trauma bond with him, or we call mm. trauma coerced attachment. And then that leader, the belief of the leader and the group, it gets inside of you, which uh, Rajiv Marshall, my husband and I have worked on a theory of totalistic identity theory. So it takes over more and more of your identity. And this right. explains why his followers are arrested are still starving themselves. He's not there telling them to do exactly. that. He's been, he's been exposed. Exactly. He's been exposed. The case has been exposed. And yet there are still people who strongly believe in what he, he preached and, and are still starving themselves to death today. That's because it's inside of them. It's their identity now. And mm -hmm. they need gentle, uh, supportive exit counseling to help okay. them to break that trauma bond and think more critically and be able to challenge what they've believed in for a long time. So it's a loss. And people grieve that loss. They thought they were special and they thought that they had found the answers to things. Right. Diane, Linda talked about breaking the trauma. How and how long does it take, you know, once you're out, to rebuild the relationships that you had? What's, what's reintegration like? What does it take to reintegrate and how long does it take? It depends on how deeply you are involved. It's on a continuum, of course, but it's, it's not instant, that's for sure. There's, there's oftentimes a moment when you realize that this whole thing is a lie when you kind of get it, that you understand what psychological manipulation is and how it works and that it's happened to you. But it is part of you. It becomes your identity. I think that's a really important way to look at it, is that you need it to be true. You want it to be true so much when you're in. And that you will push any kind of rational uh information away because you want you need it to be true on a psychological level it's become who you are and what you want in life and to let go of that is is a is a crisis it's a personal identity crisis it's a mm -hmm. trauma and once you go through that traumatic experience a lot of times you've broken your relationship with your loved ones along the way and you really don't know who you are and where you fit in the world anymore so it takes a lot of support to rebuild your life and to rebuild an internal structure for yourself based on your own autonomy and agency as opposed to just having someone tell you what's real and what's true in the world. Yeah, I, it can I guess, take months, years. Yeah, it can take a lot of time and, and patience, I imagine, to try and take out the individual, right? I mean, what, what are the right words to tell someone who's in a cult? I don't think there's any magic words mm. to tell someone who's in a cult. I think that the most important thing that I work with families a lot to who have a loved one who they are worried about, and I encourage them or try to help them find ways to talk to their loved one about the possibility that maybe they've been taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And would they be willing to just talk to somebody about 
that possibility. And there's no harm in talking with someone about the possibility. If you're right, if if there's nothing wrong with this group you're part of, then at least the parent, the loved one will be relieved to know everything's okay. And if there is a problem, wouldn't you want to know? So that's a strategy, I think, that seems to work well, because all you really want in the beginning is for them to have a conversation about their situation with someone who can help them see what what might be at stake here. Right. Uh, Shepeta, before I come to you and ask you what's being done to help victims in Kenya, I want to ask Linda about this, the same thing of, you know, what are the right words? What is the right strategy? I saw you wanted to jump in there. How do you help someone break from a cult? <laughs> Well, you need to listen to them. You need to explore what it meant to them. You Mm. need to be the ones that really care about them in a genuine way, not the pseudo-intimacy that is fostered in the group. And then you need to listen carefully for their doubts. Everyone has some doubts that come up sometime. So um, we use motivational interviewing to help people to uh, join them where they are, not arguing with them, but looking to find ways for them to explore their own dissonance between what they believe and what they've been experiencing and what they've been promised. And then you you build on that you, and mm. you build this slowly and respectfully. You don't just challenge them and say, oh, you're in a yeah. cult. That really right. doesn't work. It doesn't work to tell them you're in a cult. And you don't like the word deprogramming either, Linda. Well, no, because we moved away from that. You know, you don't need to forcibly put someone into a cult to get them to join. You can be done on the Internet, and you don't Mm -hmm. need to force them physically to leave. You need to capture their interest. Mm -hmm. You need to establish rapport. You need to find an in. You need to show concern for them. Okay. Uh, uh, Shibeta, let me come to you now. So what is being done in Kenya today to help these people who've been fallen victim to, to this pastor, Paul McKenzie, What's being done to to help them break out? I mean, some of them were on trial a few weeks ago, just a few days ago, uh, because they were still on hunger strike, which is illegal in Kenya under the law there. Um, What what is being done to help them? Uh, Currently, what we're doing is uh, we are offering uh, psychosocial support to them, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to love them, trying to show them that we're doing the same. show them that they didn't do the wrong thing because some of them lost five to six children and they they really don't know uh, what will happen if they are reunited with their with the other family members because somebody left uh, with four children uh, without telling their husband so it's it's been hard for them to even imagine that then they don't have the children anymore and how they be reunited with their family is becoming difficult so we're trying to show them that it's not uh, uh, your fault. Uh, mm. Something happened, and we care about you. The, the world, I mean, the country cares about you. So we're trying to the way to bring them back to the reality that this thing, uh, it's not about. It's not about uh, accusing or blaming them or condemning them for what really happened. Because even as we speak, some of them are still uh, in that position that they were actually brainwashed. Yeah, so time and patience and also, as you've all said, very important not to blame the victims. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you for a very fascinating discussion. Diane Benz-Carter, Shipeta Matias and Linda Debro marshall Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story.
This episode was produced by Christina Da Costa, Laura Khan, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Sasha Andreevich. The program was edited by Mohamed Sobi, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Monday for our next episode.